My guest today is someone that I have known for quite a long time. When we were sat down to record this episode, I realized it had been about 15 years. And we started out working in the same firm. So I was a graduate when I first met Michael and he was a couple of years ahead of me. We worked in a very prestigious practice in Chippendale in Sydney. And I'm very, very thankful for knowing Michael because he helped me out a lot in the early days. The practice that we worked in was known for throwing you in the deep end occasionally. And I guess that's the way you learn, right? So I was very thankful to have some great colleagues who very much helped me through that time. And with Michael's experience and expertise, I was able to deal with some of the challenges of being an architect and running a job on site, especially at the scale of the jobs that we were running and the type of clients that we had to work with. So since that crazy time in Sydney, we've both had many changes in our careers. Unlike myself, though, who went off and did something completely different, Michael stayed in the industry and he's well and truly forging a path now as a solo practitioner with his own practice, Michael Clark Architects. This is the very reason why I wanted to get Michael on the show because, you know, I have a lot of friends, but also listeners in this community who are in the design industry, be it interior designers, architects, even graphic designers, branding, any any sort of industry where you are working with design, you're communicating your creativity and working directly one-to-one with clients to help realize their vision. I thought, you know, we should really get someone on that is very much at the forefront of what it's like to run a practice, what it's like to go out on your own, that experience, what prompted him to do that, the direction he's chosen. And we also talk a little bit about the state of the design industry in 2022, 2023, because as we know, the last few years have brought about many changes, not only in the way that we work, but also there's this looming word recession. And so that's bringing some challenges for designers and different aspects of the industry that designers interact with costs and and supply chain and things like that. So it's really interesting to get his take on that and what he is dealing with, but also the opportunities as well, because with challenges also bring opportunities. When Michael's not deep in a project and getting into the details, he spends his time on New South Wales South Coast, raising his two beautiful children. And might I add, his wife is also an entrepreneur. She has an amazing apothecary called Alyssa Malcomy, which I recommend you also check out. He loves to surf. He loves the beach. He loves the outdoor life. So very much a friend of ours on the True To You podcast. Okay. Let's get into the episode and hear all about Michael Clark's story and how he started his architecture practice. Welcome to the True To You podcast, your go-to show for practical wisdom to build a meaningful, creative small business. You'll find content on marketing, mindset, and tons of experts who want to help you grow a thriving small business that you love. My guests are exceptionally creative women building businesses from their zone of genius, all while balancing many other roles in their life. I'm your host, Ruby Marsh. Let's do this. Today on the show, I have an exciting guest because apart from family and some friends, I've known this guest for, I think, about 15 years, probably be about 15 years, wouldn't it? Yeah, which is crazy. And there's been a bit of a gap where we didn't see each other for a while and we got reunited in the last year. And so it's been really fun to reconnect 
Michael is an architect and he is the owner of Michael Clark Architects, founder, owner, director, all the things. Um, And I wanted to bring him on today because we worked together back in the day when I was an architect. If you've been following the show for a while, you probably know a little bit about my backstory. If this is the first time listening and you're thinking, I had no idea that Ruby was an architect. Well, yeah, I was. And I have to thank Michael for actually helping me get over the line and officially have the title of architect (laughs) back in the day because we were studying for our practice exams for to be officially titled architect and reach a certain level in our career that meant that we had some autonomy and Michael was amazing at helping us with there's so much to learn in a very short space of time and his wealth of knowledge which you're going to hear about today but I wanted to get him on the show because He's someone that I've known pretty well who's been in the design industry for a while. And when I came into the design industry, it was a pretty tumultuous time because it was right around 2007, 2008. And we went through the global financial crisis, which did hit our industry and our part of our industry pretty heavy because we worked in the upper end. And when your upper end clients don't have the same kind of money cash lying around to spend on expensive homes, then it very much is a disruptor. So we we knew each other then and he's been through the ups and downs of the industry over the last, for you, it's been how long? 20 something? 20 something. Yeah. 20, 20 something. Yeah. 20 years to the day, actually. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's really special to contribute to the true to you uh, discussion point. And you'll see, Ruby, that throughout the discussion, there'll be a couple of points where I can't help but say, see, I was being true to me. I was being true to you. <laughs> but it's such Don't a great, <laughs> it's, it's a great heading. I love the title. Yeah. Joke, jokes are allowed around here. And it's, <laughs> it's a, it's one of those titles when I when I thought of it, I was like, oh, this is so good. And then you realize that it's quite a bit of a, a cliche phrase that people use. And and so that it comes up a lot in interviews. I was really trying to be true to me. And I was like, <laughs> there it goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I I wanted to talk about going out on your own in business and you can give us a little bit of your career history as well. You very much came from what I have written down here, the corporate machine. We can call it something else if we want, but (laughs) corporate can feel like a bit of a machine after a while. And you had some vast experience as well in that time, including us working together. And I'd love to know what made you finally take the leap and go, this is it. This is my chance. Going to do it. And timing's never perfect. And I'm sure that will come out in this story as well. But just so you know, there's always never a perfect time to start out in business. So why don't you share with us, Michael, what that's been like? What kickstarted this small business journey for you? Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Ruby. It's, uh, I like the term kickstart, but when I describe this, it was anything but a kickstart. It was more an archaeological brushing of rock to unveil some relic. I, I, I kind of reflect on some of these moments and I feel like, oh, that could have been the moment and that could have been the moment, but it was much, much more drawn out. And if you'll humour me and as I, as I talk through this, I think there's an interesting thing to note in this story that I turned what would otherwise be perceived as career tragedies or career low points into lessons learned and opportunity, which I think is is important to reflect on. But in terms of going out on my own, I probably always had the disposition, the predisposition of someone that wanted to be more than a student at university. You know, I liked extracurricular activities and contributing to the faculty, to the discipline, to the, you know, profession or the degree beyond being a student. And that was certainly true of me as a practitioner. I wanted to be more than someone on a project. 
I wanted to really be involved ideally at that front end where you make that first pass of a design. You first meet a client, they're suspending disbelief as to whether you can come up with something interesting. I, I really liked getting exposure to that and it didn't happen for a while, rightly so. Um, but I was working for a company, this is the company where we worked, that I thought was a career company. I really thought I'd be there forever. If you had a discussion with me in year three, four, five, six, seven, um, I would have said, yes, I'm going to be here for life. And it was a great company. Like my measuring stick for greatness there, Ruby, is that, you know, they got consistently got projects where clients believed in them taking them down a design path that they might not have otherwise thought of. They got work, excuse me, they got work published. Uh, do you remember where the awards were in the office? It's such an interesting branding point. Do you remember this? The awards that they received, and there were lots. Yeah, yeah they were on the back of a partition between right. the yeah between <laughs> the meeting rooms where you met clients and the bathroom. So on your way to the bathroom, <laughs> you were reminded of the fact that this company you were working with had won a gamut of awards. I love that from a branding perspective. You know, don't forget who you're working with. I love that. Uh, anyway, they won awards. And another measuring stick that I think is a little bit undervalued, Ruby, is that they attracted good staff. They attracted mm. staff that had ambition, that had done well at university. I know you did well at uni. I did well at uni. And they retained that staff for a long time. And when I say a long time, staff tended to not leave. You're a bit of an anomaly, Ruby, on that sense. In the 10 years I was there, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I swear maybe around one person, maybe less, would leave a year. People tended to stay. You know, a lot of yeah. people felt like it was a career office. Uh, anyway, something changed around year seven or eight for me. The first thing that changed is I realized when I'd finished two big projects that the pathway to promotion was somewhat blocked insofar as that it was a company where I was told, you know, for people to be promoted, people either need to leave and no one really left, like senior staff needed to leave or they needed to get bigger. And that left an interesting mark on me. I thought, oh, right. So the possibility of me getting exposure to that more front-end concept design work might be a while off if it's available at all. And that left some energy in me where I'd finished some projects, I'd done quite well on those projects, and I thought, well, maybe this isn't the career office. I still approached it that way, and I think that anyone you spoke to at the time that had worked with me, a builder or a client or anyone, they really felt like I was committed to the idea of the practice achieving continually great results. The other thing that happened though, as you've mentioned, is the global financial crisis. And so from 2008 to 2013, three, four, sometimes slightly more people were pushed out the door every six to 12 months, six to eight months. Now I was entrenched on a couple of projects and I knew that I would probably, it would be remiss of the practice to let pushed me out knowing how deep I was into those projects and how long they had to go. However, around two years before I did leave, I started to think, well, what, what's next? And I started to really think, you know, I had some colleagues that were running their own practices, small practices. I, I think I took on a private client, you know, we call that a PJ. I don't know if you remember that expression, Ruby, PJ not being pajamas, important to note, but being a private job. I took that on and it was so liberating to work on that initial concept design without re uh, presenting or reporting to someone above you other than the client. I found that really liberating. And so I got a taste for it. Now, I did work on a big project for another two years, but 2013, the discussion came up. And this time they advertised it. They said, we'd like people to volunteer. And so I don't think, Ruby, if I was, you know, in inverted commas, pushed or slightly swayed or this came up, I don't know that I would have walked. I, I really don't. I'd, I'd love to talk to you about how you eventually said this is what I'm going to do because, yeah, like I said, I thought I'd be there forever. And in, with my wife, we went through these cycles of, yes, now's the time. No, we've got to buy a house. 
we've just got married. Yes, but we don't have any kids, you know. You, you, you see the pros and the cons spreadsheet in your mind. And I, don't, I, I think I'd resign to, that's a bad pun, sorry. I, I had elected to not make the decision. And that's where I was committed. But then I found out that someone else there who had been there for 17 years, who was a close friend, she had put her hand up. And then another two friends, one incidentally is actually in Creator Club. At the time, she'd been there for 12, 13 years and another person 13 years. So there was four of us. But I hadn't put my hand up till I heard about these others. And I thought, I've only been here for barely 10, like really nine and a half. If this person after 17 years has made this decision, then there's something in that. I've got to say, there's an opportunity here. And then I took it. And I took it. And I remember the euphoria that night of celebrating with colleagues and the like. I remember sitting with one of the directors and he said, what are you going to do? And to be honest, Ruby, I, I had a couple of connections and options to work at another practice. I had no leads for private clients. But I said to him, with so much confidence, I think I want to do my own thing. Now, I might have said it. I don't think deep down I truly felt it. Uh, I think on reflection, if there was Creator Club, <laughs> if there was Ruby, if there was John, I'd have a different story to tell. I didn't have the resources to say, you know what you need to know. You need the confidence to say that you can make something of it, regardless of what you have right now. And I, I didn't. Um, anyway, that was the thought I put forward. And I remember that first day I was surfing. I felt like, yeah, this is great. I can relax. I'm retired. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, retired. But you get that moment, that moment of uh, first thing that happened is I got pummeled by a wave and it ripped my wedding ring off. So I lost my wedding ring. Oh, no. You're like, and in my oh, head, I'm like, I don't have an income stream. I can't indulge on buying a wedding ring. Like, what am I doing? But the other thing that happened is you get that sense of judgment that's completely on you, like it's self-generated. You're walking down the street and seeing all these people going about their day in the middle of the week. And you're thinking they're looking at me going, you are a burden to society. You are a liability. You're not contributing anything. You're a surfer. I just suddenly got this wave of depression. Anyway, I didn't stand the test of time, Ruby. I sort of thought about it and I didn't put any energy into my own thing. I very quickly got two or three uh, people interested in chatting and got another job within three weeks. And at the time I thought, damn, I didn't really give that a go. I had a six-month buffer, realistically. I could have given it a solid go, but I didn't. You know, someone rings and says, do you want to work here? It's another great company. And I did. Now, what was great about that experience is that some things I wasn't exposed to at that other practice we spoke about, or certainly not for a, quite a few years, if only to a certain extent, was more at the front end of design. Here's a client's vision, which we call a brief respond to it with the design, see how that goes. And I drew and I sketched. And of course, the director would change, modify, tweak things. But it was, it was again, it was nice to really experience that front end. Because truth be told, I could have gone out and started my practice and known what I'd had to deliver, know how to realize a project. But I think there was always a little bit of doubt as to what if I was subject to some scrutiny on some level, how would I go about dealing with that without the blanket of protection that a company name could offer and other directors or colleagues could offer. But I'm, I'm going to wrap this story up in a second, Rubes. I think after maybe a year and a half, so within two years of sitting with an accountant at that other practice who told me that she'd been made redundant three times and me thinking, redundant three times, that's crazy. How can that possibly happen? Like, if, if you think about that for me, well, maybe every 10 years you'd be made redundant. That's pretty heavy, but maybe it could work like that. Uh, but three times, surely that doesn't happen to many people often, if at all. But a year and a half into it, the week my son was due to be born, uh, they pulled me into a room and had come to the conclusion that the business model that they had developed didn't suit having someone senior working at the practice. And so there I was redundant again. <laughs> it's a real blow. Like you're talking about timing. I don't think there's ever a good time to break, break up with the situation and a relationship. It's certainly not a great time to find that you're 
on the streets, so to speak. But this was a week my son was due to be born. Wow, that's heavy. I, I just came home thinking again, this is crazy. But, you know, Ruby is teaching abundance. And I think if I thought about it like that, what a great opportunity to be with your wife at the time she says, I need to go to hospital. Here's you our know, son. Rather, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Rather than in an office meeting an hour away, my phone's dead or something. Mm. And I really did. I kept staring at her tubby saying, any movement, any movement. It really was like for me watching paint dry for her. It was agony. It was exhausting, you know, as, as all mothers will say. Uh, it was exacerbated by the fact that I'm waiting for something to happen unemployed, <laughs> you know, that just... It's not the best combination. But again, within a very short time frame, a lead came through. I got another job uh, within, yeah, three, four weeks. But this time, Ruby, I said, okay, let's have a plan B, so to speak, and let's action, action it. And I had three, in the end, private clients this time, PJs, that I was doing on the side to working for this practice. So I thought to myself, let's always have in the back of your mind, if this doesn't work out, you can do this or whatever. Like not to put that so front of mind that you're not enjoying the experience, but to at least have something to fall back on. And at the very least, I was partly realizing this idea of working for myself. Mm. Now, at that practice, I was getting heavily, heavily involved in the front end of projects, fee proposals, meeting clients for the first time, doing those sketch designs, concept designs. It was fantastic. We got a commendation for one project I worked on, which is uh, was really quite special. But then I noticed something familiar in the last six months towards the energy that I was feeling, how much work I had. I, I sensed something that I'd experienced before. And I did everything I could in my power as you know, someone who didn't own the business, I was an associate. But I, I started to take some contacts client representatives to lunch and, and network and celebrate on that level and see where that landed. I thought to myself, if I'm going to go down or the ship's going to struggle for a while, I want to try and do whatever I can in my power to keep it going. Anyway, it wasn't enough. And I was pulled into a room again for the third time to be told the same thing. And I know how it plays out. There's no real discussion point. Ultimately, I hold no grudges against these practices. There comes a time when people are not necessarily people, your dollar values, and you have to work out if the dollar value is an asset or a liability and you need to make some decisions. Like your reference to the corporate machine, it is a machine that works best when it's functioning, working, moving properly, and that includes all the parts. So I hold no grudges, but then I said, wow, and the depression was lower than the last two times. Uh, I went for a surf. My wife said, go for a surf overnight to your favorite location and just reflect. And I did. And this time, Ruby, I said, this is the universe saying it's time. It's time to do this. There's no other connection. There's no other option. The universe has told me three times, this is what you got to do. And anyone, Ruby, that sort of is worried about this because of job security or certainty that comes from working for someone versus doing your own thing, yeah. really reflect on this story. There's no such thing as yeah. job security. You never yeah. know when the rug's going to be pulled out from underneath you. So best you dive deep into what you're doing as much as you can and enjoy it as much as you can, you know, while it lasts. Uh, and anyway, I said, okay, now's the time. I had no leads, no connections. I just had an ambition. And the first thing I did was say, okay, I can't just go and knock on every second door. I'm going to prepare a portfolio because it was 15 years overdue. You know, the job I got at that first company I'd had for 10 years, that was the last time I touched my portfolio. And it was a really hard thing finding photos or digital now and, and making it presentable. But that action, putting that out there, and I did, I did a late night, I did an all nighter to get it done, even though I had time on my hands. That that action, I think, put energy out there that allowed people to appreciate, or especially me to appreciate, this is where I'm going, come hell or high water. And a friend, a couple of colleagues actually found this out and had projects they couldn't service, and they they passed them on to me, and they became the first projects. And it's been that way ever since, yeah. 
Uh, that's it's so nice to hear you tell that story because I know through different things that you've done with us and through one-to-one calls, group calls, days where we've been all together, you've you've shared little bits of this, but I think in sharing it in the way that you did, it's really landed for me. And it's it sounds like it's landed for you and you and yeah, now there's no, there's really no turning back. Now. No. You kind of, I think we all have to get to that point, whether that's very quickly for some people, some people it takes a bit longer where we're complete with the experiences we've had. And now we're like, okay, I like that's, and that actually, I think was really cool to hear because you can see how it really has shaped your mission for your own practice. And I think, I would also say that even though you wanted to perhaps go out earlier, it sounds like some of that extra experience that you got in the last yes. couple of years meant that you were really set up. Yeah. And I think that's always an interesting question too, when someone is wanting to go out on their own, what is the right time? How much experience does the person have to have in their industry? And I would say sometimes it's not as much as you think because mm. you can learn a lot on the job, but you yeah. have to be really gritty and willing to get those clients so you can get that experience. So yeah. sometimes it's a bit of a catch 22. The position that you're in meant that you didn't have to fill in so many gaps and a lot of the gaps perhaps that we've spoken about is around marketing and sales mm. and some of the areas of business that you just didn't, you weren't going to touch anyway. Mm. Right. No. Yeah. I think back to your point about knowing, you know, me, any opportunity to discuss some link to comic books or superhero yeah. movies or yeah. whatever. There's a great line from uh, into the spider verse, which is the animation that came out three, four years ago, where like a Peter Parker, Spider-Man from one dimension says to the Miles Morales, uh, African-American Spider-Man from that dimension, he says, when do you know is the right time to go out and be Spider-Man and be a hero? And the Spider-Man from the other dimension says, you don't, it's a leap of faith. <laughs> and maybe it sounds cliche or simplistic, but but it is, it's, yeah. it's a feeling. No one's going to say, like, even if I had Ruby and John, you're not going to say, you are ready. This is going to fail without doubt. No one's going to say that. No one said it to me. I think I was collecting that reassurance. What do you think? Yeah, you're not going to fail. You're not going to fail. No one was saying that. Mm. I had to have the mindset to say, let's give this a good mm. go. Mm. And when I finally got to that point after, you know, five years, I it was it was very special. Cool. The last couple of years have been interesting for the design industry, for a lot of industries, but particularly talking to design friends with a they're in interior design or architects or building. It's been quite a time and very interesting when you have to be on site with a job and be in person and all of that. And now there's this whole conversation around recession and economy, and we're all waiting for the day that someone actually officially calls it a recession, but yeah. Maybe there's not even ever going to be such a thing. So who knows? Who knows? The the media's um, a funny thing, right? And so with all that said, I think there's been some big challenges that we've had to face in, in relation to that. Do you want to speak to some of those macro challenges that you've faced as as an architect, as a designer, and what you yeah. sort of see going forward? Maybe you can speak to one aspect where that has been the climate of the last couple of years, whether it's technology, yeah, yeah, you you roll with it. Yeah, well, an ongoing struggle, and that's a, quite a dramatic use of the word, but but it is is the cost, the cost yeah. of construction, the cost yeah. of realizing a project. And what's also really tricky for us on a macro level, I'm not saying it's unique to the last two years, but it seems to have heightened in the last two years, and that's the alternative model to us. And by that, I mean a more of a design and construct model or a project home model uh, because there is more of a tendency for people to invest in doing work to their home because people are working from home, if not hybrid level, then full time. 
and they realize if they're going to spend that much more time in their home, they want to, you know, enjoy it. And so there's an increase, like a really high increase in, in demand, but the supply chain hasn't changed. In fact, it's, if nothing else, got smaller. There's less uh, labor around, there's a shortage of material, all that kind of stuff. And the issue that we're finding is the those alternative models, they have a tremendous, they have a lot more buying power because of the sheer volume of work mm. that they produce. Mm. And competing with that is hard. Like reality is it's going to cost more per meter squared, generally speaking, just generally speaking, to build an architect or designed project versus those other alternatives, some are which are pre-designed and, you know, massaged to suit the parameters of a particular site, you know, pick one of these three plan types. And, you know, if we think about the pillars of what we call project realization being time, cost, quality, and quantity, time and cost are always tricky things. You know, if you want it done fast, it's going to cost more. If you want it done with a certain budget, you need to take the time to define it properly. In any case, it's really hard for us to compete with that model. But, you know, my business coach, Miss Ruby, has referred <laughs> me to people like, you know, Marty Neumeyer uh, and, and this concept of the zag, you know, what's what's the point of difference that we have? And the point of difference is that we are looking at something bespoke. We're looking at something that's in a particular place in the world that is a particular response to a client's vision, a client's brief. And therefore, we are site-specific, we are client-specific, we can work with existing buildings. Those models, it's demolish only. They don't have a model. Some of them have a model to build an upper addition, but generally speaking, it's level the site, clear everything else and come in with something new. And so for me, I've really tried to find ways in marketing and podcasts and just general discussions to celebrate that point of difference. <clears throat> because, for example, last year, I had a client that actually proved this to be the case. They were going down a design and construct model. And there was a time when they said that whilst the design was, they liked the design, they didn't like the, the reduced pool of finishes they could select from. They didn't like a limited choice. And it's it, it left a bad taste in their mouth. So they said, well, let's let's go to an architect-designed house model. Let's see where that goes. And they approached me and they said, you know, we love where we live. They had a view of a mountain, a view of an escarpment, beautiful tree canopy. And none of that, in my opinion, was celebrated in that alternative model that was put to them. And the client kind of jokingly said, oh, it'd be really good to have a view of the escarpment. And I said, why is that something to joke about or laugh at? Like that goes without saying. You should be in your house cooking, cleaning, living, and be able to at any moment look up and see the escarpment framed. That makes complete sense. And I put that forward. And that's the other thing I put forward is that they had proposed to completely level the building. And I said, look, this building's been here for 50, 60, 70 years, 100 years, whatever it might be. And that's a pretty good settlement period so to speak, to show that there's no cracks or no damp or no issues, assuming there's not. And retaining that is not only more sustainable because we're reusing old stock and it's not just going into landfill, but you're saving hundreds of thousands of dollars. So provided that it is in good condition and you're going to know it because it's been there for so long, then why not work with it? I find that exciting and compelling. So these two points of difference they acknowledged were very, very different. To their experience of that alternative model. And to us, I would say, I can speak for most architects, this is almost, it goes without saying that that mm. would be something we're going to do. Mm. You've bought a property somewhere in the world because it resonates with you, be it location, view, proximity to the beach, to walking tracks for your dog or schools or whatever it is. And you can't just think, I, I, I challenge the idea that people have just bought the land and the house is whatever it is and they can take it or leave it. I think that everyone has bought a house on some level and said there's something about that existing house that they enjoy, maybe not fully, but at least in part. 
and we can pull that out and celebrate that. So that's the challenge that continues to be the case, time and cost and, and that alternative model. But the opportunity is showing how incredible it is. Sure, there's a little bit more money and we can work through that. Maybe it means you build less and we concentrate. But the outcome will be something that I believe will be longer lasting and timeless when we do it properly than that alternative model. And that's not to say that I'm here, you know, waging war on that Mm. alternative model. I'm conscious that that model works for a lot of people. I'm simply saying that there's a point of difference to celebrate by using an architect to do something more bespoke and more specific to client vision than what those alternatives offer. Mm. Mm. And I think that's been a, that's very much pertinent right now in terms of the climate and responding to the, the conditions. And when I say climate, I mean the economic supply chain, labor, all of those things. In response to that, that is a really good way to think about it because, like you say, that's the zag. But I also feel that that's probably been something, especially in more newer countries, Australia and New Zealand, where we don't have the history with architecture or the history with using architects. It's always been something that architects have had to really plant their flag in the sand and say, this is why we train for six years. Yeah. Then we go and get our, you know, there, there's a very clear reason why, in terms of what you get and why you would want to employ and uh, yeah, bring on an architect for a project. And so I think it's kind of interesting that that feels like it's been in conversation for a long time, probably yeah. always, but it's becoming even more apparent it's becoming even more apparent in terms of cities growing and even smaller cities now growing. We both live in smaller cities and just maintaining good quality design. Mm. And it's kind of interesting that whilst there's other issues that are macro issues that sometimes may have more interest for governments and things that that there's actual value in good mm. design that's mm. not going to be a short-term decision for, yes. for that family, but then also, I guess, how cities approach design as well. So, Yeah, I, I think also, Ruby, I mentioned design. I think for some of those other models, there's a point where design stops. Mm. And for True. us, I maintain that design doesn't stop. It changes its focus. Yeah. So you go from a broader brush idea of where it's going to sit on the side or how we're going to extend out heights and volumes or whatever. And each stage you go deeper and deeper and deeper into detail and you're discussing the ceiling to wall junction detail or how a kitchen bench top will relate to drawers and doors and relating that to some precedence or some experience or some other situation. There's always a design discussion. And that's another point of zag. I think for some of those other models, you know, there's the broad brush design idea and then everything else is, you know, documented or built or Mm. or something like that. For me, I'm always, it's a bit of a stressful component. You know, the builder's halfway building and the client says, let's look at the front door. And like, oh, wow, that means I've got to be light on your feet and improvise. And, you know, it's become stressful but it's a challenge and it's exciting and it's true to form. You know, it's true to you, Ruby. Sorry, we said there we we're going to do that. <laughs> boom, boom. Number two. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, it, it is. It's the reality that we design right through to the keys being mm-hmm. handed over. We're not doing macro design things. They're more focused. But the design discussion keeps going right to the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, so true. Okay, we're going to get a little bit more into the detail of your work. I wanted to talk to you about something that I feel is probably not an easy conversation for most people, especially when you work for yourself and you're doing all the things. You're also very much client liaison. You're designing the project, delivering the project. You might have a small team helping with that, but still in 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 smaller practices, you, there's a lot of um, back and forth with the client. And one area of, of that is fees. 
And the reason why I wanted to talk about this is I know in this community, we have everything probably from branding designers. I, I have worked with furniture designers, interior designers, architects, where your fees aren't just a few hundred dollars or even a couple of thousand you're looking tens of thousands often upwards, even for branding work now to get a great website done, things like that. They're, they're very substantial projects. And so being the person that not only has to help realize the project, but has to deal with these sorts of conversations that could be perceived as confrontational for some people. When you're delivering big fees and the process of that, what have you learned? Like what's some things that could help people out there that either they're thinking about increasing their fees and they know that oh, I've worked with clients at this fee level and now I want to go to the next level with my practice <clears throat> or they're out on their own now and they haven't really done a lot of this. What's some things that have really helped you to navigate that and also, I guess back to our macro economic conversation, this is, like you said, something that can be a really sticking point right now, really big sticking point right now. Yeah. Well, I, I think we're in a little bit of an easier, and I say that with hesitation, situation to the branding, to alternative website design, whatever, because our fee needs to be reviewed in the context of the overall cost of the project. Mm. Yeah. And that's the first conversation we're having. That's definitely, you know, I think this relates to your expression that I hear you guys say a lot, you know, making the skeletons dance. Is that, is mm. that yeah, that relates to yes. this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You get in the room and you say, it always is the last thing. Well, not always, but it's often the last thing we discuss, you know, what you want to achieve, you walk around and you talk about business client vision, you look at the site, look at aspects of the existing building. And then you sit down, you talk about the process, and then you talk about what their budget is. And it's always a tricky moment because I think no one could be criticized for thinking that, you know, their understanding of how much things cost is usually way off the mark. You know, for whatever reason, do-it-yourself programs or whatever, whatever it is. Almost all of the clients that I speak to have a budget of X that is misaligned with their vision you know, what they want to achieve, their brief. And so the first conversation is we have it, well, I think we need to talk about that because we either need to change that vision, change that brief, or find more money. And usually at that stage, they're like, okay, well, I, I didn't really understand how much things cost. So they've got some wiggle room in the money sense. And even then I say, let's do a concept design. And then after the concept design, let's get a budget estimate from a quantity surveyor. But in terms of our fee, I, I think one thing that's interesting is to point out, you know, that number that a builder might put in front of you for the cost of construction and the clarification as to what leads to that number. So let's say you haven't worked with an architect or, you know, you've got very basic documentation from someone else and a builder gives you a trade breakdown, a breakdown of how much things are cost. And it's a breakdown of what is essentially say $1.5 million, you know, that's a big number. You know, for some people, it's equivalent to what they paid for the purchase of the property or thereabouts. And so there's a concern about overcapitalizing and working through that, but it's a big number. Now with that big number, you get a trade breakdown, you might get eight trades. And when I say trade breakdown, you might say there's one line that says roofing, 100,000, might say carpentry, 200,000, brickwork, whatever, concrete, whatever, but it's still one word, big number, one word, big number. Mm -hmm. So in terms of a breakdown, you still wouldn't be criticized for saying that they're taking, if this is a joke, they're making mm -hmm. fun of me. Mm -hmm. How can it be that much? You know, concrete 300,000, I think the average citizen wouldn't, yeah, would think I don't understand the connection, but I do because I've done this for a while and more to the point, I have seen what is at the back end of the generation of that figure, which is what we call a detailed breakdown of uh, what we call a bill of quantities. And we get this from quantity surveyors when we're getting prices for budget estimates. And instead of it just being 12 trades, it's 40 pages mm. of 10, 12 line items per page saying, 
you know, for concrete, here's the cost of the labour to put in the formwork and then the steel reinforcement, then pour the concrete, then finish the concrete and all that stuff. And when you add all those together across multiple trades, over 40 pages, I think most people are hard-pressed to say that no longer makes sense. You might not be happy with the figure still, and most of them are still not happy with the figure, but you can see what's led, the work that goes into getting to those figures. And so the disconnect is not so apparent. You know, when I've been in that exercise, I might have looked through four items out of 100, 200 line items and found some savings. But generally speaking, you go, tick, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense. You get it. And in terms of fee proposals, I've had experience in some of those other practices, writing fee proposals, preparing what is, yeah, a number that isn't, as you say, hundreds or a couple of thousands, it's tens of thousands, but making it clear what's involved. And so instead of it being a big number with just a one word summary, thinking about the equivalent of that budget estimate I described, more is more in that sense, more information more detail as to what you're doing. For example, in our case, a list of drawings, how we're coordinating consultants. You know, I can't submit to a homeowner or anyone actually 40 pages explaining what I'm doing. That's just way too overwhelming. There's sometimes I wish I could. And the reality is I can't say just go and drive the car or go and use the phone. You know, the proof is in the pudding. I have to explain it to some level. So it's finding that happy medium between really elaborating on what it is that you're going to be doing, as I said, drawings, coordinating consultants, working through this issue, what the general focus is for each stage. But I've had some feedback recently when I uh, submitted a free proposal to a client, the wife printed it out for the husband to read and he read it and he went through each item to see if there was anything that I was doing that he could do. And truth be told, there were a couple of things that he could do in relation to, you know, working with the builder, dealing with the builder's progress claims and the contract administration side. Obviously, he can't do the drawings and coordinate the legislative approvals and all that stuff. But he went through it all and he gave it back to his wife and said, we can't do all of this. Like, we can't do all of this. And even what he could do, he probably would say, what's better for me to focus on generating Mm. the income to Mm. pay for the overall project? or have a stressful experience answering questions in limited amount of time from a builder that detracts from me performing my job to a point where, you know, you know, I'm, I might be made redundant. I'm being extreme there, Ruby, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really good feedback. It showed me that more is more. When you explain and elaborate, you reveal more as to what you're doing and the results that uh, have worked out a lot better for me than those times where you just give like a couple of bullet points. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And once you've done that, one thing that we talk about a lot is this idea, you mentioned it too, of understanding the client's vision or their brief. And alongside that, do you find that, yeah, it's helpful to have it spelt out, but then to remind them of the bigger picture of what they're actually creating here? Because it's very easy for the mind, depending on where they're at, to really get into that granular detail. And like you said, the husband went through the fine tooth comb, but you can disconnect you from what you're actually here for, what you're creating, what the vision is. And beyond the project being realized, but then five, 10 years down the track. So I don't know if there's anything you want to share around that, that in terms of balancing out that conversation with making sure they have the information, but then making sure you're actually really clear on the client's vision, you bring that back into the conversation as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's vision-based sales as taught by the team at Creator Club. (laughs) I've always had what we call you could think of it as return vision or what we call return brief. You list out based on the meeting, what the clients, the content essentially, like Mm -hmm. for a house, how many bedrooms. And we do that on a quantitative level, like all the room types. And then we always have a little component that speaks to the qualitative components that might be a view of the escarpments or it might be, uh, I can't think of any, oh, um, 
I had one client that's got two American pocket bullies and it was really important to make sure that they were well considered in (laughs) this response. And, you know, you laugh, but it's true. It's true. Uh, And that touch, you know, to be honest, the vision, especially the qualitative developed vision won't play out at that first fee proposal stage. Some of it plays out as you go along. Like certainly at the fee proposal stage, I'm not talking about the ceiling to wall junction or what lights we're doing for a project that, you know, I haven't done a concept design for. But you you definitely make reference to those points and how this ultimately is me responding to their vision with a design response. And just on that point to remind, because you, you're going into a lot of words, you know, and, and drawings and whatever. And unfortunately, until you've been through it, you don't necessarily appreciate what's involved. It's true. And they're all doing it for the first time. So one thing that I've really appreciated that I've started to do in the last year is put images of completed projects or projects that are during construction or images of projects. You know, a lot of content, a lot of words, a little bit prosaic, there's a rendering. And then doing that, I think, not only breaks up the fee proposal, but reminds us of the fact that ultimately this is the goal, Mm. a design outcome in response to their vision. Yeah. And so, yeah, those two things have been important to really keep going to. And when I go to a phase like construction documentation, like I'm now describing the points in that, I'll start with that opening prologue or opening synopsis, if you like, saying this is the stage where we're developing the client or the response to client vision to a level of detail for a builder to understand what we want them to build, something like that. Mm. So that if you really are pressed for time and you just can't go through all these lists of deliverables and drawings, that paragraph should give you at least an insight as to how this stage will feel. That, that's yeah. my hope. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Something that you brought up a little bit earlier is your love of surfing and your love of comics. Are these two places where you draw inspiration from I think a lot of designers would really understand this but for the non-designers realize that our inspiration doesn't always come from within our industry to a certain extent it does we look at precedent which means precedent meaning past projects what other architects trends perhaps But there's often other elements and one thing we've been exploring with you and your business over the last year or so has been this idea of bringing that part of your personality and it probably does, like I say, subconsciously come into the design anyway, but also making people aware that that's that's part of who you are. And so I'd love to know, that's a couple of areas, are they the places where you get inspiration or is there somewhere else as someone who's a non-creative or someone who wants to be more creative yeah where do you draw your inspiration from yeah that's such a good question and I haven't remarked on the fact Ruby that all your questions are like 10 out of 10 so oh, like thank well, you. well done <laughs> um yeah so I in final year a very short story that I'm going to release on my podcast if anyone's interested in checking this out. But I failed the first part of final year, which was huge for me in terms of all the things that you and John discussed, fear of judgment, because really people fail all the time, right? It's the fear Mm. of people judging the fact that you failed that hurts the most. And I failed because the subject was an investigation workshop. For 12 weeks, we had to workshop an investigation into a vision. We had to be the client. We had to write our own vision, our own brief. And for four years, I'd not done that. You know, you'd maybe Mm. said, oh, what happens in this room and how big is this space? You might challenge little components, but fundamentally, you'd never say why that program, which is a fancy way of saying what you do in a space, you shop, you you learn, you are treated for health. Uh, We'd never challenge why that program on that site. And so now when we had to do it, it was like, whoa, I don't know what to do. And I freaked out and I couldn't deal with it. And I wanted to just say, I'm doing a museum in the middle of the city. I'm doing an art gallery in the middle of the city. Whereas other friends stepped back and were able to say, I'm interested in the idea of the harbour. Who knows what project that will lead to, but you can investigate that and that would be a compelling investigation. 
anyway, I didn't and I stumbled and I tripped and, you know, was scrambled in the head and I failed. And I remember going out that night at university, I was deep into playing music, performing music, bass, guitar, guitar, recording songs in a band, et cetera, et cetera. And that night, my friends who had all done well, you know, it's an interesting situation where everyone's on cloud nine and you're, you know, down the bottom, you feel a bit like, oh, just lift your energy. Don't be in a place of lack. (laughs) (laughs) But at the time, I most definitely was. Anyway, a friend who I've not said thanks enough to, she said, for you, it's got to be about music. You've got to do a deep dive into what it means to perform music in cities, how music is made instruments made, uh, all those things. You know, I loved Radiohead. I still do a little bit too much. And they're very, you know, dynamic, atmospheric artists that if you were to dissect on multiple levels, you could get interesting discussion threads that could lead to discussions about cities and spaces and places. And I remember I woke up the next day and like, you'll appreciate this, Rubes, you know, thinking about what you're going to do doesn't help. You need to act on it. And for us in architecture, we can't think an idea. We have to draw the idea. We have to model the idea. You know, I criticize students all the time when they come into class with five bullet points of what they're going Mm. to do. I said, that's fantastic. You need to test it. You need to realize it. Our medium is not words. It's visual things. And so I thought, well, yeah, as if music really. And so I, I stepped back and I picked up my guitar And I played, I think I was playing Morning Bell off the Kid A album, which on acoustic guitar is super bright, atmospheric, some strange tuning. And I just remember playing this really bright section and just thinking, wow, imagine communicating an idea for a space, for a place, for a vision, for a project, whatever, through song or through some song structure or rhythm or something. And, you know, I'm cheating life, Ruby, in some ways. I'm combining my love for what I'm studying with my love for something outside of what I study. And, you know, anyone who has that combination doesn't work a day in their life, to use that cliche. And and from that point on, I was unstoppable. And so for me, a lot of those interests, comics, movies, guitar, surfing, I'm someone that loves, as a result of that failing, to do the deepest dive into them I possibly can, not knowing full well what could come out, but just doing revel and basking in the uncertainty and the uncomfortableness and seeing what comes out and what could be used. And I love it when clients are honest to me and say they like music or they like surfing. I had a client that approached me because they saw on my social that I was a surfer. And he was a surfer and he liked the idea of having that discussion and, you know, bringing that out in the discussion we can have for some of the strategies for the site. You know, we're not designing a wave and we're not imitating a wave, but talking about the experience of how you feel when you're on a wave and surfing and light qualities or whatever it is, was something quite special. It was a bond. And so I definitely, you know, it's a cheap, to justify me doing non-architecture related things but I do often the beauty of architecture is you can bring that back into architecture and I can't wait for the day where I go to a a client meeting with no drawings just my guitar (laughs) and I talk about the idea for a space and how a space will feel or how a space will sound uh, by communicating that on the guitar I think the other thing, though, definitely, as well as doing that deep dive and seeing what could come out and suspending disbelief, something I really, really like, Ruby, is uh, tactic, no, sorry, using my hands. Mm. When I'm working up that first pass to a solution, I love being off the computer. Yeah, I have had this thought the other day that we should draw more and draft less. And for me, one of the great discoveries about drawing that I think you could apply to many things. Like, how do you think about marketing? How do you think about sales or whatever, like any promotional strategies? I worked with a lecturer, tutor, mentor, very good friend, and he ran a subject where he promoted three types of drawing or thinking about drawing in three ways. Because I love, I've got a special pencil that I love putting on paper for the first idea. And then I go into tracing paper with a 0.6 to start getting 
developed ideas and then maybe I'll go to a model and then maybe I'll put it all down and think about a song or something. I love changing focus and changing medium. But what we're doing in a way is what he said. There's three types of drawings. You're doing a drawing of, so that's instrument, uh, sorry, yeah, representational. That's drawing as representation of something. I'm drawing a tree. I'm drawing the site. I'm drawing the existing building. And that's going to reveal some components. But that's one way of thinking about drawing of. Then the other one he said was drawing out, which is an instrumentational quality of drawing. So I'm drawing out the potential opportunities through the act of drawing, not through thinking about the drawing, but the act of applying pen to paper. And I'm just seeing what happens. Sometimes you do it subconsciously. Sometimes you do it consciously. But for me, the act of drawing can unveil things. The act of playing a song or writing a song will unveil things better than me thinking about doing that mm. drawing. And then the final one is drawing in influences. So, you know, Ruby's made this comment about Marty, Marty Newmeyer or looked at something to do with Porsche and I can't, you know, a quote or whatever. You know, what? let's see what some of those influences tell me in terms of the way my drawing goes. And this definitely happened for me on a project where I was really not happy with how the elevations were looking. And I'd said, I'm just going to turn off email, phone, everything and sit with my, I've still got a drawing board. And I put the drawing board over a computer drawing and I got my pencil and I drew, you know, one sheet and then put that aside, tried to do another one from a different approach, tried to do different solid void studies, look at different opening configurations, different patterns for textures. And I spent the whole day doing it. And I was doing exactly that, doing those three types of drawing. And that exercise makes me really I enjoy that. I thrive during those moments. You know, you've got mm -hmm. to park the distractions. Uh, but that's one thing that inspires me and excites me to really do a deep dive into those drawing techniques, which you could replace with modeling. I reckon you could replace with thinking about marketing and mm. yeah, other aspects, like I said. But they're the things that I love. I love meeting a client, Ruby, and sitting and them in that first meeting saying, so what do you think? Do a drawing, do a sketch, show us your idea. And I am quite proud of the fact that I'll say, no, I need to go away. I might have an idea. They might have an idea. It might be a good idea. But you need to say, be comfortable in the fact that this is a process and I need to go away and you need to suspend disbelief that from this process, something special will come. I love that. I love that uncertainty. I find that really, really thrilling. Yeah. So, so fascinating to hear that, I think. Anytime you can talk to not only someone that's passionate about their work, this always comes out, but I think getting in the mind of a designer is, is super cool and still even not being in the industry, it still really fascinates me. So I appreciate you sharing that at that level of detail and also everything that you've shared in this conversation. I think we've sort of spanned all aspects from right yeah. into the design process through to handling fees and what's going on in the in the economic climate and how that affects the building industry and and how you started so thank you so much Michael for your time and for sharing all of that so so generously you have a podcast as well and for someone that is planning to do a project, a home project, or perhaps other types of projects, but have never engaged an architect before, your podcast is really the perfect go-to for that. Am I right? Yeah. I'd also say for anyone that's genuinely curious, yes, like you true. say, as to what goes into architecture, designing, I'm curious about multiple professions. I mean, there's only really one other architect in Creator Club. So a lot of the conversations I'm having with people in Creative Club are outside my, my normal orbit. Mm. And that's compelling. I think that for me, I'm obviously designing spaces for people. So I love hearing what people do and why they do it and what's involved in their day. And I think so many of us, myself included, have a misunderstanding as to someone says there's a copywriter. So, so what are they doing all day? Someone, even a teacher, a policeman, a nurse or whatever, and I love, I love hearing that story. And for me, I can't give you a summary of those professions because I don't do them. I can 
tell you what's involved in realizing an architectural project and what the experience of working with an architect is like. So regardless of if you're ever interested in doing a project or maybe doing one in one, two, three, four years, this is an effort to reach out and say, this is what it's like. This is how it feels. This is what's involved. An effort to try and make it seem compelling, exciting, thrilling, exhilarating, not intimidating. I have this concept where I'm trying to beat the bully and the bully is someone telling you don't do that or this is a bad idea. I'm trying to instill confidence that working with an architect can be really special and really rewarding. And that's the, yeah, the vision, if you like, for the podcast. And the podcast is called What Is and What Could Be. Yeah. Yeah. Got (laughs) that. Cool. Cool. So I'll make sure that I link that in the show notes if you are interested. Thank you, Michael, again for your time today. It's been a real pleasure to do this deep dive with you and hear more of your story. Thanks for having me, Ruby. It's been an honor, a pleasure, and thank you. I can't, yeah, I can't say anything else other than it's been an it's been a nice experience to walk down memory lane and chat with people that listen to your great podcast about the experience of an architect working with an architect and how we, how we roll. Yeah. Thank you.